So, Father God, we bless you for your faithfulness. And the same God who is faithful to Israel, to Moses, to the disciples, is the same God who is faithful to me. The same God who is faithful to, to Big Mama is the same God who's faithful to me. And we sing and declare, great is your faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Now, God, I call once again on this great faithful God. Would you be faithful one more time to speak through me, your servant, your word? I pray that the seed of your word would fall on good ground, that it would take root, that it would produce a harvest of fruit, that we would leave here changed. Be so kind, God, as to save someone's soul, to add to your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of our faithful God. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, you may be old school like me and turning pages. You may need to take out your device and click on not your Pokemon Go apps, but your Bible apps. Amen. And meet me in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Let, let, let me just say a word of encouragement to us uh, today. And, um, you know, I, I know this can come across as very self-seeking, and I understand. We've got a million things to happen in the morning and a lot to take care of. And, uh, but I just want to encourage us, um, you know, uh, one of the things you realize le- leading a multi-ethnic church is that um, CPT is a, is a fallacy. All right, let, 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 me, let me speak in English. CP time is not just for black folk. You, you, you still don't get it. That all God's children can do a little better with getting to, to church house on time. All right. So I just, I just want to encourage us. I'm not rebuking anybody. Uh, but I know some of us, when, when the boss man says be at work at nine, we, we there at nine o'clock. Y'all ain't going to amen me on that. If our kids' basketball coach says, we need you there by 2 o'clock, we got our kids to their games by 2 o'clock. So I just want to encourage us um, for the one who sent his son to die for us. If we could just do a little bit better at getting to the church house on time. Can two people say amen? Amen. In the name of Jesus. First Peter chapter two, pick me up in verse one. Peter writes, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. I love this verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, verse 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe, 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one quick note before we jump into it. We're going to have to, um, because of our picnic at 12 at Ringsdorf Park, uh, I've been asked to tell us um, we're going to have to get out of here as soon as possible uh, so that we can shut this building down and uh, be able to hang out together as a family at Ringsdorf Park. So if you could just make plans accordingly. Anybody here ever read John Krakauer's classic book, Into the Wild? Anybody ever read that book or seen the movie, Into the Wild? Yes, I see a couple of hands. It's a wonderful book. It's about a 20-something-year-old frustrated young man by the name of Christopher McCandless. And Christopher McCandless is just frustrated with life. He's sick and tired of people. People have let him down. So he decides that what he's going to do is he's going to get away as far as he can from people. And he wants to embrace a mission of braving the wilds of Alaska by himself. So against the wishes of his parents and friends and loved ones and even avid outdoorsmen who were trying to tell him how foolish this was to go it alone... He gets rid of the $25,000 in his bank account, donating all of it to charity. And he literally takes the remainder of his cash out of his wallet and burns it. And sets off on an adventure, a mission, across the wilds of Alaska. Four months later, a moose hunter stumbles across his decomposed body. He's dead. And with it, a sign... The last words he had ever written, two words from the pen of Christopher McCandless, need help. Need help. There are some missions in life that are so big and beyond you that you and I can't get there on our own. There are some things that God calls us to that we actually need help. Need help. As we come to the book of 1 Peter, we've just kind of been making our way through this book. We've discovered that the key word that sums up the whole book of 1 Peter, in fact, I want you to write it in the margin of your Bible or in your notes app there on your device. The word that sums up the whole book of 1 Peter is exile. Over and over and over and over again, Peter keeps calling you and I exiles. We learned the first week we were in this series a couple weeks back that 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 Greek word, Peter's writing in Greek, the Greek word for exiles, that literally means the close stranger. It is is our social equivalent of the term immigrant. It is a person who may live in geographical close proximity with us, But the more you get to know them, you hear them talk, you watch what they do. It's obvious that even though they're close to us geographically, culturally, they're from somewhere else. And we've discovered that when you and I decided to say yes to Jesus and to follow God, that we now became citizens of another place called heaven. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. 
And because our citizenship is up there, our loyalty to our heavenly reality is to trump any loyalty to our earthly reality. In fact, we are to get our marching orders from that place, and that place is to govern how we navigate this place. So that to be a Christian means that we're an exile, and to be an exile fundamentally means we're different. In fact, if I could say it this way, exile is actually spelled D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T. So that what this means for Corey and I, if, if, if we ever move from our home and move somewhere else out of that neighborhood, and there's no sense in which any of our neighbors, just in seeing how we related to one another, related to them, could say, you're different or there's something curious about you. I don't think we've adequately represented Jesus well. To be a Christian means we stand out. It doesn't mean that we're better than. It doesn't mean that we're legalistic or self-righteous or judgmental. But there's just an aroma of being different. Now, as we come to our text, Peter wants us to understand that one exile cannot change the world. That you and I have been called to make a difference in the Bay Area. 10 million people, 2 to 3% Christian. There is no way that one of you can change the Bay. So Peter understands that. That's why when he comes to our text, he now begins to wrestle with the power of a collection of exiles coming together in a local church on the same page, loving the same God, loving one another. He says, when we actually come together and lean into each other and God and say in our own proverbial way, need help? He says, now you can make a difference. You can't do it by yourself. You need the church. So we got to wrestle with the church. And I know this is a hard sell in the Bay Area. I'm not an expert on the Bay, but it strikes me as if no one moves to the Bay for relationships. If I'm wrong, please tell me. No one drops a million and a half dollars on a house because you felt called by God to leave Atlanta to be closer to Big Mama. The primary reason people come to the Bay is for affluence. Success. We we, we typically flock flock to the Bay, watch it now, for autonomy. We want to come here to make something of ourselves. I'm not here to say whether or not that's, that's good or not. What I am here to say is that autonomous mindset may work out in the community, but it has no place in the church. The church is not to be a collection of me. It is we. And Peter says, when the church functions in the power of we, not me, the individual, but when we really collectively come together and in our own way, fight the spirit of Chris McCandless that lives in all of us, but we lean into each other and we say in so many words, need help. There's power in that. So I want to talk about the church. If you're here today, you don't know Jesus Christ and you're just visiting with us. Maybe you're invited by family. Maybe you want to hang out with us afterwards. It's a great Sunday. I just want to talk to you about why God created the church. But before I can get to that, I just kind of want to deconstruct some things. Now, 
I grew up down south. I grew up in the Bible Belt. And uh, I'm a preacher's kid, which um, my dad wasn't a pastor at the church we were at. He was an evangelist at the time. But pretty much what that meant was every time the doors of the church were opened, I was there. And I went to a church that pretty much judged your spiritual maturity based on how many times you came to the building. Anybody ever grow up in a church like that? So, so in my church, you were really good if you came every Sunday. In my church, you were great if on top of that, you came back Sunday night. And in my church, if you came back on Wednesday nights for Bible study, you loved God. Okay? Anybody here ever go to a church like that? So many churches, they just, they just want to gauge your spiritual maturity. They'll put you on the varsity side of the kingdom based on how many times you come to the building. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is if you read your Bibles, especially in the New Testament, wherever the word church is used, not once is it used to refer to bricks and mortar. I love this building, but this building ain't the church. The Greek word for church, ekklesia, literally means the assembled ones. It speaks of people. So the problem here is church is not based on the amount of times you come to a building. It's the people of God, the people of God, the people of God. But on the other hand, there's some people amening that, 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 um, that maybe on the other side of the extreme, th- there are some people who... Your problem is when it comes to church, you tend to audit church. Ever audited a class in school? Pretty much when you audit a class in school, you're pretty much saying, I want to take this class on my terms. So I'll come to how many lectures I want to come to. When it comes to the syllabus, I can kind of take or leave the assignments. Um, a person who audits a class is typically, typically not as all in as the people who are actually taking it for credit. So many Christians, we like, we like to audit Jesus in church. Come when I want to, when it comes to the syllabus, kind of cut and paste, choose what I want to do, choose what assignments I'm going to give myself to. That ain't church, friends. What does the church mean? As we come to our text, Peter says, when we talk about church, church has four foundational elements. The first thing that should happen in a church based on our text is that church exists to confront our mess. To confront our mess. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, Y'all ain't saying much today, and um, I'm a chocolate preacher, and I'm used to folk talking back to me. And so when y'all don't talk back to me, I just preach longer, all right? So every time y'all silent, we're going to add about five minutes to the text, all right? So when you're ready for me to finish, just say, bring it on home, land the plane, and we're going to do that. But y'all don't have to talk to me in here today. Preach. Thank you. Thank you, sister. All right, now. So Paul opens up chapter 2, verse 1. He says, so put away, underline that phrase, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So here's the implication here. Remember, Peter's writing church folk. He's writing Christians who've been saved by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he opens up by saying, I want you to deal with your sin, which the implication is people, even in the church, sin. 
I don't have a deep word for you today. <laughs> Church folk sin. I, I, just, I just need you to understand that. Church folk sin. When you sat down here today, you sat down next to a sinner. You sat down next to someone who brought in, you didn't realize it, a lot of baggage. Now, you can't see their baggage. Some of y'all is carry-ons. Some of y'all sit next to some people, they, they had to check their stuff in. They just got some stuff. It's big stuff. But you sat down next to a sinner. And guess what? That person sitting down next to you, they sat down likewise next to a sinner. I think it's just important that you understand that and you realize that this is not a sterile place. This is not a perfect environment. It kills me when I hear non-Christians say, well, I don't come to church because the church is full of hypocrites. Listen, any organization that has people involved will be filled with hypocrites. AKAs have hypocrites. Alphas have hypocrites. Kappas have hypocrites. Wherever there's people, there's going to be hypocrites. So check that box and move on. This is a place that has sinners. All right. So I just want us to breathe easy. This is the church. We mess up. We do stuff that we, so, so here's the deal. When you, when you go to apply for a job, they do all kinds of checks on you. And nowadays they can check just about everything. They can check your internet footprint. They can check your social media accounts, what you post on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the whole night. And the reason why they go through all these extensive checks is your potential employer is saying, before I want to get in relationship with you, I want to know if there's any flags. And if there's any flags, I don't want to be in relationship with you. Well, with God, it's the exact opposite. God didn't need to run any background checks on us because he knew there was a whole bunch of flags we all had. And yet in spite of all our flags, all of our spiritual footprints, God still by his grace said, I still want to be with you. Oh, now I can preach fast. So that's what he's saying here. So that he says, look, I want you to check a box. Church is not a perfect place. Breathe easy. This is not a perfect place. You are sitting next to a mess. And that person sitting next to you is a mess. In fact, right now, just turn to your neighbor and say, you are a mess. Say it right now. Just turn to them and say right now, you are a mess. You're 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 a mess. All right. Some of y'all talk a little too long now. Like you really wanted to say that, right? I said, turn next to each other. This brother turning behind himself and... Now, I want you to look back at verse 1 because I want you to see something here about the specific sins that he mentions. He says, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Now, all these are what theologians call social sins. Now, now, in some sense, all sin is social. But specifically, these sins are sins that hinder relationships. Malice is a big junk drawer, junk drawer term that simply means all kinds of evil. He says, I want you to put that away. Next, he says, all deceit. D deceit is presenting yourself as something you're not. He then goes on to say in hypocrisy, hypocrisy is actually a theatrical term. It literally means an actor. If you were to go to theater back then, you would sit down and watch. What you would see is the actors would wear masks and sometimes actors played multiple characters. And the way in which you knew they were switching characters is they would switch a mask. So the idea of hypocrisy, which is a theatrical term, literally meant one who wears a mask. It is one who presents themselves as one thing, but in the house of God, they come across as another. 
It's hypocrisy. Now, I've been pastoring enough to know. Uh, the church I left in Memphis, we'd grown that thing. It's five services. Parking, the parking lot was a mess. And I'd get reports all the time. I know this never happened at Abundant Life. But I got reports all the time. Uh, this never happened at Abundant Life. Of church folk. Never happened at Abundant Life. Church folk pulling up to the house of God to worship. Cussing out, cussing out the parking attendants. I know that never happened here. Speaking to them in sign language. Cussing them out. Yelling at them. And then coming into the house of God. Praise the Lord, saints. Hallelujah. It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. He says, I want you to put that away. I love this one. And envy. Envy is a competitive sin. I once talked to a priest who had just retired. He says, in 40 years of hearing confessions, I've heard everything confessed but envy. Envy is wishing you had what someone else had. It's interesting That's why the Bible never calls God an envious God. It calls him a jealous God. Why? Because God don't wish he had what you had. Whereas the Bible calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve, envy is the exact opposite. The envious person rejoices with those who grieve and grieves with those who rejoice. It's a competitive sin. It laughs at the tragedies of others. And grieves over the triumphs. The envious person just can't slap high five and genuinely wish you well. You can't do that if they're competing with you at the same time. He says, I want you to put that away in slander. It's defaming a person's character. Now, here's what I love. He says, put it away. The Greek word for putting away was literally used of a person who was changing clothes. He says, when it comes to your sin, I want you to deal with it and put it away. Don't flirt with it. Don't play nice with it. Don't laugh at it. Don't pick it up and put it down and pick it up and put, take it off. Take off the gossip. Take off the slander. Take it off. Question. What sins in your life you need to put away? What do you just need to deal with that you haven't been dealing with? Before I move on to the next point, let me say this. The implication of our text is not only does Brian need to deal with his stuff, put it away. But that the church actually exists to help others confront their mess and put it away. Now, I want to be careful how I'm saying this. I am not knighting us to be spiritual FBI people who are always pointing out the mess in each other's lives. But I think a loving community, we actually walk with people through their sin and love each other enough to talk about it and to help them deal with it. So let me give you three things that I just find helpful in walking with people through their sin. Number one, I've already said this. Remember... People are sinners. In all my years of pastoring, it just amazes me. People sit in my office and um, they'll cry their eyes out because something happens between them and another person in the church. And they'll be crying their eyes out. That person gossiped about me. Okay, I know that hurts. But it's almost as if they're surprised that church folk act like sinners. I just want you to check a box. Don't be surprised at other people's sins. 
It happens. So if every time someone sins against you, you cut them off, you're going to be a lonely person. All right. I just added another five minutes to this sermon. Y'all not. So y'all playing with me today. If every time someone sins and you cut them off, you're going to live a lonely life. So (laughs) y'all are funny today. Y'all are funny today. So I just want you to understand this, right? Now, secondly, it's very important. I want you to write down Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. Second thing you need to understand is not only do we all sin, but all of us have what I call unique sin struggles. Where do I get this from? Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. Look at it with me on the screen. The writer of Hebrews says these words. Let us also also lay aside every weight and sin and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says, he says, I want you to lay aside dot, 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 the sin which clings so closely. Well, this drives people nuts. What is the sin which, which leads so closely? Why, why are you just being so ambiguous here? What is that sin? What is that sin? I think the writer of Hebrews is being so ambiguous is because he understands the sin which clings so closely for me may not be the sin that clings so closely for elder Carlton. We all have it. We all have our unique. I mean, I, I got a, I got a family member used to attend my church when I pastored in Memphis. And, um, I just remember thinking one day I can literally get rid of the, the bulletin because all I have to do is tell this family member and inside of an hour, the whole church will know. It's her thing. It's her thing, which leads me to the third thing. You got to figure out what your thing is. The third thing is don't manage one another's sin. Now, 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 let me, let me tell you who does really good at managing each other's sin. Family. Ever gone on a family vacation with your extended family? Anybody here ever done that? Get, Get your siblings, your parents, your nieces and nephews, Pookie and them all together in a house. Ever done that? And the first 71 hours, it's great. And then around about 70, the 72nd hour, the third day, you're like, yep, there's a reason I moved to California. <laughs> anybody, anybody ever been there on that one? So, so the stuff starts coming out. There's something about the three-day rule. There's stuff that starts. Am I the only one who, who, who knows this? There's stuff that starts coming out after the third day, which, which make, makes you say, I knew, I knew I should have gone back, got that plane ticket to go back a little earlier. It's just how it is. Now, now watch this. I got, I probably shouldn't say this because he's going to listen to the podcast, but I got wonderful parents. They're not perfect, right? They're, they're, not, they're not perfect. You got wonderful parents, not, not perfect. And here's what, what we tend to do as family. When a family member does something, a lot of times we can just keep our mouth shut. And instead of dealing with it, we walk around it. We manage it. Let's just keep the peace. We're not to do that in the church. Something happens. And what a healthy church does is, brother, I love you. I'm not leaving you. But let's sit down and let's talk about this. Because the church is to be the place where we confront each other's mess. Secondly, the church is to be a place where we crave a common message. He says, look, put away all malice, all deceit. 
hypocrisy, envy, all slander. Verse 2, like newborn infants long for, underline that phrase, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So here's he's saying here is you got saved. I want you to long for pure spiritual milk. What is pure spiritual milk? It is the word of God. I want you to long for the word of God. He says, this is elementary. It is foundational to your growth. So if we just stopped it off at the church is to be a place where we confront each other's mess. If that's all the church was, then we can say AA is a church. But the church is more than that. It's a place where we long for the word of God. And he's saying just as milk is essential to the growth of a baby in the natural, so the milk that is the word of God is essential to the growth of any thriving believer in church. It's essential. In fact, if you study church history, what's interesting, in many of the churches, one of their one of their symbols that they would do when they would bring in new members, just as we did, they would give them white robes. The white robes symbolized holiness, but they would also give each of them a cup of milk with a dash of honey, symbolizing the need to crave the sweetness of the word of God. That we want you to be people who are of the word. Now, to some of you, this may not sound popular, but let me just kind of reaffirm it. Here at Abundant Life, there's a rich tradition that I'm following in that is anchored in the Word of God. Here, we don't preach the New York Times. Here, we don't give TED Talks. Here, you're not going to come in and watch a movie. Here, we're going to open this up and walk through the word of God because this is what changes lives, not my opinion, not my stories, not this thing. So I need to be dedicated to unleashing the word of God on you so that by it, you can grow up into, Peter says, spiritual maturity. That's why I spend about 20 to 25 hours a week studying for Sunday's message. And if ever you walk in here, your expectation should be, I'm going to get the word. And if ever you don't get the word, you should leave frustrated. Just like if I walk into in and out I expect a burger. And if I order a double-double and bite into it and it's tofu, I'm disappointed. <laughs> Unless I'm you, Brother Rocky. <laughs> right? Because here, we don't serve tofu. We serve the Word of God. Now, now watch this. I love it. Look back at verse 2. Peter says, listen, when it comes to the Word, I want you to long for. Long for is a command. It's actually a command. The only command in our text. Eight verses, only command. He's commanding us. Get this. I am commanding you to crave the word of God. Now, why do you have to command somebody to crave something? Because there's flesh in us. I don't know about you, but I don't wake up every morning going, oh, praise the Lord. It's 5 a.m. Let me get in the word. I don't. So I I, I want you to understand something. It's not unspiritual for you to not crave the word of God. It's called a spiritual discipline. Disciplines, by very definition, we're not always passionate about it. He says, I'm commanding you, crave the word of God. Now, here's the question. How do I crave the word of God? Look at verse 3. If indeed you have tasted, you have tasted that the Lord is good. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
He says, if you can just get a taste of the goodness of God, it will drive you to long for this book. So many drug dealers, many drug dealers, when they're looking to expand their clientele, they will typically comp the first hit to a prospective client. Why? They understand the power of a taste. If I can just get you a taste, you, you, you may have been an honor roll student at Stanford, but the next thing you know, you break it into your mama's house, stealing her TV, selling it to get money to get you another hit. What turned your world upside down? A taste. Likewise, Peter says, if you can just taste and see that the Lord is good. If you will just reflect on the goodness of Jesus. My grandmom and them, they used to sing a song, when I think of the goodness of Jesus... And all that he's done for me, my soul cries out, hallelujah. Thank God for blessing me. If you will just taste and see his goodness in your life, it will drive you to crave this book. See, what he's fundamentally saying is the word of God is not just a bunch of words on a piece of paper. It's not just a bunch of historical facts or nice stories. It is the transcript of a living, loving, eternal God who has been good to you. And when God has been good to you and you reflect on that, you come to this book not just to gain information, but to know more about this good God. Thirdly, what is a church? It's a place where we confront our mess, where we crave a common message. But thirdly, it is a place in which we have connected community. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, I want you to get this. This is a very un-American part of the sermon. He uses the image of living stones. Now, this image of living stones, it actually comes from the Old Testament temple. Look at um, 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 17. Look at it with me on the screen. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dress stones. Same idea. So that the idea, the imagery Peter is using is, is the building of the temple. They quarry out, they gather these incredible, costly, beautiful, precious stones so that collectively they could build, build something that brought glory to God, which is the temple. Did you know the temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? And when you walk by the temple, what took your breath away, hear it now, what took your breath away was not the individual stones, but what took your breath away was the individual stones coming together in community that collectively they declared something great. The problem with the church is we pay too much attention to individual stones. And it's really the problem with people like me. Look, at the end of the day, we're living in a celebrity pastor kind of a culture. Where all I am is a stone. When you come to church on Sunday, you better come not to see a person, a stone. You better come to see Jesus. And if I'm up here preaching... 
you better be able to look at me and see Jesus. And if you can't look at me and see Jesus, you better be able to look around me and still see Jesus. But your faith must not be based on this stone, but on Christ alone, the cornerstone. So what he's saying here is the true beauty of abundant life is not you, the individual. It's when a bunch of individuals come together and love on and lean on one another. That's the power. One of my favorite theologians, Karen Job, says this. Look at it with me on the screen. The imagery of the living stones being built into a single unit implies that the significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. Coming to Christ means coming into relationship with others. If you're a Lone Ranger Christian, you're not living God's ideal for your life. Not only in one's own generation, but also by being united with believers of every generation who likewise have been built into God's grand building project. Put the next image up there. We've all seen this. Fall of every year geese take off flying. Notice they're flying in what, what we call a V formation. Geese have figured out that they fly more efficiently, not when they fly alone, but when they fly with others. Scientists have actually spent a lot of time, and there's a lot of data on this, and I won't bore you with all the numbers, but, but when geese fly in formation, they're able to draft off of each other which means they're able to travel farther, longer, more efficiently. In fact, scientists have actually told us that there are many times in which one of these, in a, in a V formation, one of these geese will, will drop out and will land on earth. But when that happens, another one will always drop out with them so that they're not left by themselves. And they'll hang out together until that one individual is able to get the strength it needs, and then it takes off again. But even then, when it takes off again, they're not going to fly just the two of them. They're going to look for another V formation to hook up with. You know what the tragedy of this is? Geese know more about and value more about community than human beings who've been made in the image of God. God has created us to fly together in V formation. You and I need people in our lives who are looking under the hood, who are asking us hard questions, who we can draft off of each other in moments of weakness. I can draft off of your strength. And when you're weak, you can draft off of my strength and vice versa. You need that. Not just you, but the pastor needs it too. And so that's why, I mean, it's just beautiful yesterday at the men's huddle. We're sitting there got these huddle groups happening, these tables, and we're, we're getting into it, and we're taking prayer requests, and we're checking in on each other, and we're sending group text messages because we need each other. You buy a stone alone is not what God intended. Now, what does this look like here at Abundant Life? If you're not in a growth group, you need to get in a growth group. You need to be in community with other people who are going to help you. Let's go home on this one. Finally, it means we have a common mission. 
Look with me here at verse 5. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy, circle this word, priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not trying to get Catholic on you, but it's true. When you became a follower of Jesus Christ, you became, you may not know it, a priest. Put your hand over your heart and say these words out loud with me. I am a priest. I am a priest. That's what Peter calls you. You are a holy priesthood. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to be a priest? What does that really mean? It means three things. Number one, as a priest, you have unique access to God unique access to God. If you study the Old Testament, you'll, one of the things you understand in just studying the temple, not everybody could go everywhere in the temple, but the priest could. On the, uh, on, the whole, uh, on, on the day of atonement, it was the priest who could go into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, and offer atonement for the sins of the people. Now, I promise you, that's one job you would not want to have. The reason why is, parenthetically, they would always tie a rope around the high priest's ankle with bells that would jingle, and there would be people standing outside because the problem was, if you're a high priest and you're in the Holy of Holies and you sinned, God struck you dead. But now the Jews said, now, if you're the only one who can go in there and you get struck down, who's going to get you out? So they tied a rope around your ankle. And there was bells. And as long as the people on the outside heard the bells, they knew you were right. But if them bells stopped for a considerable amount of time, they pulled you on out of there. Because you had unique access. Now watch this. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, I want you to understand, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Which means... I don't need to go through another person to make atonement for me, another human being. That's already been taken care of. That's what's found in Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And as a priest, that means I can talk to God anywhere, anyhow I want. Driving down the street, in the shower, in my home, at work, on a break. I have unique, unprecedented access to God. But secondly, it means... That I have a unique calling. Did you know that while the prophet brought God to the people, God would always tell the prophet, I have a message to give to my people. Prophet always say, thus says the Lord. Prophet would bring God to the people. The priest would always bring the people to God. So to be a priest means fundamentally, I am bringing people to God. I'm bringing people to God. I'm bringing people to God, which means this. To be a priest has evangelistic undertones. It means that I am constantly talking about God, bringing, bringing the people to God. Now, now don't freak out because we hear the word evangelist and we get a little freaked out. Let me get you to relax. In Acts chapter 1, as Jesus was about to board a cloud and head back home to heaven, he said these words, And you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world, not my lawyers. Are you getting this word? You will be my witnesses. Some of us are freaked out about evangelism because we think we got to come up with all the answers to all the questions and argue and reason somebody into the kingdom of God. Now hear me, we, we should be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within, but, but God doesn't need you to be his lawyer. He needs you to be his witness. You know what a witness does? A witness just sits down on the stand and goes, here's what I saw. Here's what I heard. Here's what happened. Here's what I know. 
That's all a witness does. What does it mean to witness for God? You may not know all the arguments, but what you can say is, hey, at one point I was blind, but now I see. At one point I was dead, but now I'm alive. At one point I cussed like a sailor, and the next thing I know I'm singing praises to God. You just need to be able to testify of the goodness of God and what God's done in your heart and life and leave the results up to God. As a priest, you are his witness. Thirdly, to be a priest means that I've got a common mission. The idea here is, he goes back as we close in verse 5. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Here it is, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This sounds eerily similar to another verse. Write down Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Look at it with me on the screen. Paul, in writing to the Romans, says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know, whenever you went to the temple to offer a sacrifice, you always had to come and you bring, bring an animal with you. And when you brought that animal, you had only presented your sacrifice when you gave it to the priest and you took your hands off of it. Likewise, to be a priest... And I offer the sacrifice to God. I only do that when I take my hands off of it. So the idea here is, in Romans chapter 12, when he says, I want you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. It means when it comes to my life, Pastor Brian has a hands-off approach. God, you get to do whatever you want to do with my life. You call the shots here. God, wherever you want to send me, you send me. And I was, I was, in, I was in New York City. Doing great. Minding my own business at the church. I just knew I was going to be there for a long time. I took out a two-year lease on my apartment. If you know about anything about apartments in New York, you always go year to year. I was so confident. I didn't even consult God. Two years. And God showed up one day. He said, there's this church out in the West Coast, Abundant Life. I'm calling you to go there. Uh, God, um, I signed a two-year lease. He said, yeah, it would have been nice if you to talk to me about that first. We have a hands-off policy, friends. What is God telling you to do? And you need to take your hands off. Where's God sending you? What's God saying to you? And you need to take your hands off. You can't offer your sacrifice, your life as a sacrifice, and hold on to your life at the same time. It just doesn't work. God says, I run this. I call the shots and I'm calling you to be my priest. Finally, this passage, he ends by talking about Jesus and he says something interesting. He says, Jesus is the cornerstone. And while some I'm paraphrasing have rejected, others have received, but notice there is no middle ground. When it comes to Jesus, you either reject him or you receive him. Tuesday morning, I'm going to get on a flight and head out to Florida. I got to preach down there. And uh, I'm hoping at the very least I'll get um, the exit row, which is what I call poor man's first class. Anybody here ever sat in the exit row? Praise God for the exit row. If you sit in the exit row, you do know before you take off that the flight attendant is going to come to you and going to ask you a question. In case of emergency, are you willing to perform the functions required in sitting in the exit row? When they ask you that question, they're not looking for you to go, let me think about it. They're not looking for a maybe. 
They're not looking for a, let me get back to you. It's a yes or no. When it comes to Jesus, it's the same way. There is no middle ground with him. You're either going to receive him as Lord of your life, or you're going to reject him. He's either going to be the cornerstone of which the rest of your life is built around, or he's going to be someone you are stumbling over and tripping over. There is no middle ground. The cornerstone was always the first stone they would put down, and architecturally, the whole building was built around that cornerstone. Likewise, when Jesus is called our cornerstone, it means this. He is first in my life, and everything else in my life is ordered around him. Is Christ your cornerstone? Is Christ your cornerstone? As the band plays, I'm not going to belabor the point long here. But I want to pray for us. And I want to make a clear call to salvation. And I want to ask the question, have you received Jesus Christ? Not have you rejected him? Not if there's some kind of middle ground. I don't want to know if you're auditing Jesus. I want to know if he has your heart. If he's first and foremost in your life. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray right now all across this room. We have proclaimed your word. We have preached it. We have unveiled the power of your word. And we have, Lord God, done a thorough investigation of what the church is about. We need help. We cannot be all that you've called us to be by ourselves. And yet, Lord God, the starting blocks to us really making a difference in the Bay Area for the glory of who you are is by having Jesus Christ in our hearts and lives. And so, Father, I pray a simple prayer. I pray that no one would leave here today without saying yes to Jesus. That just as that flight attendant looks at those people in the exit row and asks a simple question that requires an either yes or a no, and I've never heard someone say no, it's always been yes. Yes, I'll perform that function. I pray that you will let someone say yes to you today. Save, Lord God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't offer you religion. I don't offer you the same old, same old. I offer you Jesus Christ, who died that you would have life, that he would be the cornerstone, the alpha and omega of your life. If you're here, you're going, man, I don't think I know Christ as Lord and Savior. Would you come? Would you come? The altar is open. Would you come?